You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. So in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 8, here's what, here's what the Bible says, okay? It says that, that the grass withers and the flowers fall. So living in Oklahoma City, you know, first time I've ever lived in a city where there's Bermuda grass, but we know that in a few weeks the grass is going to turn brown, right? So the grass withers and the flowers fall, but here's what the prophet Isaiah says. But the word of our God, okay? Grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So there was a French philosopher in the early 1700s whose name was Voltaire. And here's what Voltaire said about about the Bible, okay? He said... Within a hundred years of my death, the Bible will disappear from the face of the earth. I mean, people won't even remember it as a book. Within a hundred years of my death, I predict that the Bible will disappear from the face of the earth. So Voltaire died in 1728, almost 300 years ago. And the Bible continues to pick up speed. So, so what is it about the Bible that outlasts time? So what is it about this book that is unlike any other book that has ever been written in history? And, and why do so many people look at this book and say, this book is truth. I will base my life on this book. I'm not talking about thousands. I'm not talking about millions. I'm talking about in our world today, two plus billion People would say, I will base my, my life on this book. And so I don't know if there's times in your lives when you think about the Bible and you kind of ask those kinds of questions. So, so what is it about this book? And, and is it really reliable? And how can I know that it's truth? And why do so many people base their entire life and their eternity on what is written in these words? So Paul says, I think I have an answer to that. And here's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, this is not just a book of words, but these are the words from God. These are God's words. These are the words of God. And so, this is not an ordinary book. This is not like a book you can compare to any other book in history. This is God's Word. So, let me take you to that passage of Scripture, okay? We are in the book of 2 Timothy, and we are in chapter 3, and we are in verse 14. All right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. We'll also put the words on the screen, but if there's a Bible nearby and you want to grab it, open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14. Now, let me just take a minute and say that when I, since we're talking about the Bible, when I say 2 Timothy 3.14, like when Paul wrote this stuff, he didn't write down chapters and verses. You understand that, right? So I wrote a lot of emails this week, but I didn't put chapters and verses in any emails that I wrote this week. We don't really do that when we write. So you say, well, how did we get chapters and verses? Well, in about the 1200s, somebody decided that if we put chapters, it would make it easier. And so in the 1500s, somebody else added verses. And so it's like, 
you know, your address of where you live. If you give me an address, I think I can find your house. And so that's kind of what we did with verses of Scripture. And so we gave them chapters and verses, and I can stand up on Sunday morning and say, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and we all land at the same place. So that's what that's all about. So here's what, here's what Paul says in these words. Um, he is talking to a guy whose name is Timothy, and he's given him some real encouragement, and maybe he's kind of given him a little bit of correction along the way as well. And he says, you know my life, you know how I've lived before you, you know, you know what I've done. Um, I know that you were a person who grew up in a home of faith that you first learned from your grandmother Eunice and then your mother Lois. And you know the life that I've lived before you as well. Even though there are false teachers and there are evildoers and they're kind of going from bad to worse and they're deceiving people and they themselves are deceived. I mean, like, they're misleading people, but they think they're right because they have been misled. And then he contrasts what he sees for Timothy's future with those false teachers. And that's how we get to verse 14. So he says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from who you learned it. Now listen to this. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 16 he says, Timothy, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we give God thanks for the reading of His Word today. So, when we open the Bible, Paul's not just saying, "Um, I think I'll talk about the Scripture. He's talking to somebody whose name is Timothy about something that's going on in his life. And so if you try to just extract Scriptures out of the Bible and just act like they weren't written to anybody for any purpose, you really miss a lot. And so here's what's going on. There are people who are teaching things that are not true. And so we understand that, right? We've been talking about seven big questions. And we've been asking questions like, well, how do I know there's a God? And so we live in a world today where there's a lot of false teaching. And although the Bible tells us that ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature can be clearly seen. And therefore, nobody has any excuse to say, I didn't know there was a God. Because God is seen in creation. And even though we read that in the scripture, there are people who are saying, how long are you going to believe this fairy tale or this myth or this fable that there's a God? I'm telling you, there is no God. He doesn't exist. And what even blows my mind even more is that there are people who spend a lot of their money trying to get that message out. So there's a lot of false teaching in our world. And when we ask questions like, so why does God allow pain and suffering? There's this false teaching that says, well, either God is not all-powerful or God is not all-loving. Because if He were all-powerful and if He were all-loving, He wouldn't let suffering happen anymore. It's a really bad argument. But that's the kind of false teaching that you hear. When you ask questions like, don't you think Christianity is too narrow? And there's a lot of people who are false teaching saying, you know what, there are many paths that lead to God. Just pick one. That'll get you to God. Why do these Christians have to be so narrow? 
But Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then when you ask questions like, is Jesus really God? There's this teaching today in our world that says, you know, Jesus was a good man. We can't deny that he existed in history. Historians tell us that there was a guy named Jesus who lived. And we believe he taught people and we believe he did good deeds. But he was not God. And yet the Bible tells us that the Word came and dwelt among us in the flesh. And so 2,000 years earlier, there were false teachers. And so here's what was happening in Paul's day. There were a group of people who were teaching that all Scripture, all Scripture was not to be embraced. And here's what he actually said. Some of the Scriptures you might even reject and some you might accept, but all Scripture you don't want to embrace. Furthermore, they said, everybody doesn't have this special knowledge to know which scriptures to embrace and which ones to reject. And so we'll help guide you and know which scriptures that you should embrace and which ones you should reject. And so Paul confronts that kind of teaching with seven words. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. All scripture is God-breathed. And useful. All right, so we'll get kind of real with each other for a minute, if you're okay with that. And I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't mind looking me in the eye for just a minute, we'll just be straightforward with each other, okay? And I'll just say this much I believe all Scripture is truth, I believe all Scripture is God breathed. So now I want to ask you, do you believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and true? Or would you say, Rick, I'm okay with some of the things that I read in the Bible, but there's some things that I read in the Bible I'm not good with. And so I kind of pick parts of it. I can live with that, but other parts I struggle with. And you've got to understand that when Paul wrote this, Rick, that he wasn't talking about the whole Bible. He was probably only talking about the Law and Prophets because that's all he had, although I believe the meaning is much deeper than that myself. Sometimes, Rick, I think that maybe we would step back culturally if we accepted everything that's here. And so some of the parts I struggle with, some of the parts I'm good with. And some of the parts in the Bible seems to me to be a little bit primitive in its thinking. And that causes me some consternation within myself. And so I might be one of those people who picks and chooses some. So, so what are you getting at, Rick? So let me, let me chat with you, okay? Here we go. I was in a Bible study Wednesday night. It's the fall of the year, and so in the fall of the year here, we offer lots of other opportunities besides like small groups or Sunday schools for discipleship. And so I'm going to a men's Bible study on Wednesday night. Tim Taylor leads the Bible study. And the other night, a guy named Jim Priest was teaching. And he takes out an ink pen, okay? And he says to a guy sitting in front of him whose name is Joel, he says, Joel, how long do you think this ink pen is? I mean, if you just had to tell me how long you think it is, how long do you think the ink pen is? And so Joel says to Jim, he says, well, I think the ink pen is probably about five or six inches long. Joel, you think the ink pen is about five or six inches long. Why do you think it's about five or six inches long? 
Why would you say that? What brings you to that conclusion? And so Joel says, well, because um, I kind of have in my mind how long an inch is. And I know how long a ruler is, and a ruler is 12 inches, and so I think it's about half as long as a ruler, so I think it's about 6 inches long. And Jim says, so Joel, what you're telling me is this. You're telling me that you have a standard, right, in your mind. That you measure the ink pen by. Is that what you're saying? That you have this standard in your mind and you measure things by that standard. And that standard is a ruler. And Joel said, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay to say that I have a standard in my mind and the standard is a ruler and that's what I measure things by. And so Jim said, sometimes I teach an ethics class. And I try to help people understand that they have a standard in their mind by which they make ethical decisions. Sometimes the standard is money. I'm taking a new job and I'm basing it on one thing and that is I will make more money. Sometimes the standard becomes what my culture is saying to me. So I know what the Bible says about this really hot topic these days. But my culture is saying something else. And so the standard by which I am making a judgment is what my culture says, not what the Bible says. And so Paul, listen to me this morning, is introducing us to this concept where he says, what if? What if you embraced all of Scripture as authoritative for your life? And what if the standard for your life became Scripture? And what if every moral decision you made, the standard was the Scripture? And what if every choice that you made, the standard became Scripture? And what if your worldview was based on Scripture? And what if you answered the big questions in life? And the basis for answering the big questions was Scripture. So that's what we're going to talk about some. I think before you can talk like that, you have to ask the question, is the Bible reliable? And that's the question we're focused on today. So, can I trust this book to be true? So let me take a few minutes and say four things to you about the Bible in regard to its reliability, okay? So the first thing I want to talk about is its historical accuracy. What do you mean by that? Well, if you like getting online and just kind of digging deep into stuff, uh, archaeologists have dug up so much stuff that proves that not only places that we find in the Old Testament existed, but that events that we find in the Old Testament actually took place. And so if you enjoy going there, you could have a lot of fun just kind of digging through, going, wow, that's interesting. Wow, my goodness, I didn't know. When you get to the New Testament, you have guys like, Matt, like Luke, rather, who writes the gospel. And, and so when Luke writes his gospel, he is a very detailed writer. And so here's what he does. He, he lists 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands. In his writing of just two books, Luke and Acts. And so if I'm looking at the Bible and I'm asking the question, is the Bible reliable? Well, one of the first questions I want to ask is, when Luke mentions all of these places, did they really exist? That's important to me. Because if I begin to look historically at the book and its validity, I'm going to say, did these places that Luke wrote about, did they actually exist? Were they real places? Because if they did not exist, then that changes me. I'm saying, well, if they didn't exist, then what is this? And every city and every country and every island that Luke mentions actually existed in history. 
So he say, I understand that, but how do I know that they're writing truth? And so let me give you just three passages that might help you out a little bit. So when Luke writes his gospel, since we're talking about him, he writes the introduction like this. A lot of people have tried to give an account of what has happened in these last days. He's referring to Jesus' life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so I decided myself to do a careful investigation. And so I talked to witnesses and have written an account, Theophilus, so you will know with confidence in your heart these things that have taken place in these last days. There's this other passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 15 where the Apostle Paul says, Jesus appeared after he was resurrected from the dead. Not only to the disciples and not only to others, but on one occasion he appeared to over 500 people. And then Paul says, and many of those people are still alive today. You can go talk to them about when they saw the risen Christ himself. I think the third point I would mention to you is simply the resurrection itself. If you're going to make up a story, you should make up a better story. Because I don't think the story would be a great story if you're going to make it up. For example, if you're going to make Jesus the hero of this whole thing and the Savior of the world, I would not have him in the garden saying to God, is there any way maybe we could not do this thing? The cross, that is. I mean, could you let this cup pass from me, God? I mean, I think if I'm going to make him a big hero, he's going to look more like Braveheart. You know, at the end of the movie, why would you have him begging to get out of it? And why would you make the first eyewitnesses ladies who had very little credibility in that culture? And why in the world, if I'm a disciple and I'm making this story up, I'm not going to have myself running in fear for my life. I'm going to be the guy who stood with him to the end, you know? I just think if you're going to make up a story, you can make up a much better story. And so there's a guy named Bruce Metzger who died a few years ago who was a New Testament scholar at Princeton University. And he says that the New Testament has historical accuracy unlike any other ancient book that we have. And so even people who aren't proponents of Christianity say we have to give it to them on this basis that their writings have incredible historical accuracy. Let me mention just three other things and I'll do it quickly, okay? I think the other thing would be the unity of the message of the Bible. So, you've got to hear this. The Bible is written over a period of how long? 1,500 years. All right? How many separate works? 66 books. How many authors? 40. Written on how many continents? Three. How many languages? Three. So you got a book you're telling me that was written over a period of 1,500 years, 66 different works, 40 different authors, three different languages, written on three different continents, with one central message. How? And do you know what the central message is? Jesus. Jesus is with these two guys on the Emmaus Road one day. And here's what it says Jesus did. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, He explained all the scriptures concerning Himself. And even Jesus realized, as you go back to Genesis, this whole book 
is about me. The other thing that I would mention, the third thing, is prophecy. So, you know, a guy named Malachi is writing 400 years before Jesus is born. Isaiah is writing many years prior to that. And they're talking about the fact that your king will come and he will come to his temple. The one that you seek will come to you. You understand only God can see the future. And so here's the deal. If you want to refute the Bible, here's the only thing that you have to do. This is it, okay? If you want to refute the Bible, this is all you got to do. You just got to find some way to explain away 1,800 fulfilled prophecies. And when you've accomplished that, you can just say the Bible is not true. All you have to do is explain away 1,800 fulfilled prophecies. So let me mention one other thing, and and this is not in most, most categories, but it's important to me when you look at biblical criticism. What did Jesus say about the Scripture? I stood right here last Sunday. Do you remember what I said to you? I believe that Jesus Christ is God. And so it's important to me to hear what Jesus says about Scripture. And Jesus over and over and over again said, It is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. If you cut Jesus, he bled Scripture. And Jesus one day said, Everything in the Law and the Prophets will one day be fulfilled. It is all true. So maybe we can kind of bring this home. Uh, let, me, let me think with you from this perspective. Uh, Nett and I um, were getting up and ready one morning for work. And uh, this was a few years ago. And, and so we disagreed about something. And, and to be honest with you, we kind of got into it a little bit. A lot. And, and it wasn't going so well. So I don't know how you feel about that. That's my pastor and his wife, and you're telling me that you guys sometimes disagree and you don't handle it that well. Uh, it's kind of funny. Um, I see Christy Busick sitting back here, but she can probably relate. When we had girls in high school, um, like we, our girls would invite a friend over from our church, and, the, and a couple times a little girl said to us, my mom's really excited about me coming to your house. She wants to know what you guys are really like, you know. <laughs> like if you're a preacher, you're weird or different or something. I don't know. And, uh, but but we, we sometimes disagree. And sometimes, like you sometimes don't handle it well. We, we don't handle it well. And so it got a little heat in the house. And I'm thinking, you know, I haven't even had my morning devotions, but I am leaving. There is a bad spirit in this house and I'm getting out of here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Somebody is not being as kind as they could be, and I just, I'm going away. So I decide that I'm going to go to my office for my devotions. I'm not even going to sit in this house. Me and Jesus, we'll just go alone off to ourselves with our good hearts, and we'll get our, you know, devotions in this morning. So I get to my office, open my Bible to do my devotions, and I'm using in that season of my life this devotional book, and here's what I read. In as much as it lies within you, Live at peace with all men. I hate it when that happens, don't you? I just hate it. And I'm saying, but Lord, she is the one who... No, we're not talking about her. We're talking about as much as it lies within you. But God, she does not... I'm I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about you as much as it lies within you. But she does not have the right attitude. We're not talking about her attitude. We're talking about yours. And as much as it lies within you, live at peace with all men. 
And so I, oh, I hated doing this, but I pick up the phone. I said, Annette, and she says, hello. I said, I forgive you. <laughs> no, I didn't. I said, I'm sorry, I was a jerk. She goes, I know. <laughs> so I think it's really important to look at historical accuracy. And if you want to dig around, you can just find tons of stuff on that. And I think it's important to think about prophecy fulfilled. And I think it's important to talk about the unified message of the Bible. And I think it's important to listen to what Jesus says about Scripture. But let me take you somewhere else for a minute, okay? If you only focus on those things and you leave this thing out... I think you're missing it really bad. And that is, does the Bible speak to me when I read its words? Does it nourish my soul? Does it correct my way of living? Does the Bible teach me and train me? When I open the words, is this book alive? After 2,000 years, is there still life in this book? Does God speak to me when I read these words? I think that's the question you've got to ask. Because Paul says, Timothy, this book is useful <laughs> for rebuke and for teaching and for training and for correction. And as a dad, I understand that because sometimes I teach my kids and train my kids and sometimes I feel it's really important that I rebuke and correct my kids because I love them. So, Paul says to Timothy, you're getting all this other information, Timothy. These false teachers are telling you a lot of things, but Timothy, you're not like them. And there's a phrase that is in my head today that I don't know that I'll get out for a long time. And it's been with me all week, and here's the phrase. But Timothy, as for you. Will you look at me for a minute? As for you, I'm not talking about the guy behind you or the person in front of you, but as for you. You remember last week I stood here and I told you that when I was 19 I had this conversion in my life, that when I was kneeling down at the altar I was one person, when I stood up I was another, I was born again, my heart was transformed. For months leading up to that, I believe God was drawing me. Because here were my thoughts. Rick, where's your life going? What are you going to be? Who are you? You were raised this way. Your parents brought you up in church. But that's not who you are today. So who are you going to be? As for you, Rick Harvey, where's your life going? Paul confronts this young man named Timothy and says, Timothy, as for you, continue in the way that you have been taught. By your family? Chances are strong that there's some people looking at me right now saying, Rick, I, I'm where you were. For sure what I believed wasn't committed to what the standard of my life was going to be and what I was going to base my life on. That's where I'm at, Rick. Right? And 
this morning, God is speaking to you as he spoke to Timothy through Paul. And he's saying, but as for you, where's your life going? What are you going to base your moral choices on? What is going to be the standard for your life? Where do you form your worldview? What's going to inform your decisions? For many reasons, you can trust this book. love these Sundays because today is today we participate in communion in a moment a group of people are going to come up and they're going to get these trays and they're going to pass them out you're going to take a cup and a piece of bread in your hand and you're going to receive what represents the blood and the body of Christ you understand that to receive him is to receive his word And so those of you who are going to serve us, will you come and would everybody else stand with me at this time? When I was growing up, we didn't start eating until everybody got to the table at my house. And so we'll do that today. After everybody has been served, if you will hold on to the elements that you receive until everybody is served. And then, and then I'll kind of give us instruction and we will eat and drink together, okay? And if you're not a member of this church, that, that doesn't mean that you can't participate. So everybody is free to participate. I think the only thing I would say to you in that is that please make sure that you are sincere in what you're doing and that you're seeking Jesus as you do this. I do think that is really important according to Scripture. And so after everybody's received and after we've sung together, then I'll come back to you and I'll just say, let's eat and drink together.
So Jesus was with his disciples and he took the bread and he says to them, this is my body that is broken for you. So take it and eat it. And then he tucked a cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Drink it, all of you, and be thankful. We are thankful, amen. So my my encouragement to you this morning is simply this. Open up your heart and receive the word of God. Receive all of God's word. God bless you. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.